you guys can open up to Genesis chapter 1. If you need help finding that and you want to borrow a Bible, it's on page 1. So there's that. I know some people don't know where it's at, so it's good. We want to tell them, but I thought it was funny just to say page 1, so bear with me. All right? I know I'm not that funny. I get it. If you need a Bible, there's, hey, don't amen that. All right, I heard that. There's a Bible on the seats in front of you. If you'd like to borrow one, we would ask just join us, follow along. Last week, we talked about Christmas from a different perspective. Again, I got to do this at the high school, just share. I got to create a kind of a two messages leaning into Christmas. We want to do similar versions of those messages here. Last week, we talked about the word become flesh. This morning, we want to approach Christmas again from a different perspective. So last week, we said the last thing Jesus needs is another birthday party where more focus is spent on you than on Jesus, right? We talked about that, like how do we reshape what we think through, what we do, how do we refocus it on Jesus? Or how do we maybe even, for the first time, focus it in on Jesus? And so this morning, I want to back up and I want to share with you the first proclamation of Christmas, if you will, or the birth of Christ. I want, to, I want to talk about the first time it's ever talked about in Scripture. And what you will see is, is it is to a surprising audience. Let's just say that. Let me put this up on the screen. Christmas is about victory. The first promise ever given about Christmas was spoken by God to Satan. Interesting. God promised that a child would come and to have victory, and a child would come and have victory. Sorry about the typo over Satan. God preaches Christmas for the first time. When he does so, he's speaking directly to Satan. Bet you didn't think that. And his proclamation of Christmas to come is about victory over Satan. Actually, Satan's sin and death. But that is the first time the Christmas, if you will, message is shared. So Genesis chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 46. Verse 26 says, then God said, let us, that's the Trinity, God, we talked about that last week, all three persons, one God creating. Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God says... Let us, us, the triune God, one God, three persons, right? We talked a lot about that last week. Jesus is both with God and was God and creator. Nothing created apart from Jesus. Jesus didn't begin 2,000 years ago. So we see that here. Let us make man in our image. And when it says in our image, the image of God, when we talk about that, it means that we are to reflect God to the world, that we are the image of God, that we are made with God's attributes. We are loving because God instilled God's love into us, created us to represent, image God to the world. Really, the first thing we learn about humanity is kind of our purpose, that our job is to reveal, show, or image God to the world around us. So let us make man in our image, let him have dominion, Right? So Jesus, we see as creator. We talked a lot about that last week. He is co-equal creator. He's not a child born in a manger 2,000 years ago as if that were his beginning. Right? That is true. That's not his beginning. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This isn't just about Adam. This is about humanity. That men and women are created in the image of God. That they are to represent God to the world. Right? That they are made in God's image. Now, we know the problem. We know that sin comes in and destroys that. That it, it comes in and, and changes or breaks the image of God inside of us. But we learn so much from the beginning of Scripture we know so much about our intended purpose or our design and really how we are to live. So it's good every once in a while to go back to a passage of Scripture that is really formative and shaping and should tell us about not only how we were made, 
but how in the gospel we can return to our design. Right, that in Christ we can take all that's broken, or, or better said, he can take all that is broken. The, the spirit in us can take those broken things, redeem, transform them, and bring them back to how we were created to be. And in this case, this image of God, that we are to represent God to others. And remember what we've been talking a lot about, that nowhere is it more important that you image God than in your home. Men, that you would image God, that you would represent God to your wives, to your children, moms, wives, that you would image God, that you would portray God to your children. Nothing is more important except your relationship with Jesus. Let's assume that one for the minute. That we are created to represent God to others and the others there, no one is more important than representing God to those in our own home and family. Verse 28, and God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Right, again, be fruitful and multiply. This isn't just about having kids, but have kids and teach them, disciple them, in the faith. I met with, it was actually a doctor that I saw this week, and he was talking to me about his faith. He's Jewish, but he's not, he doesn't practice like a traditional Jew. Uh, he practiced like a traditional American. He makes up his own thing, right? And so he was telling me how a decision that he's making that he shared with me, I won't go into the details, not important, but a decision he was making, he really does concern himself with the eternal implications. Like, is, if he's making a selfish decision, he will have to stand before God and, and account for that someday. And in that place, I, I really like that he's thinking that way. The rest of it around that is really him worshiping God on his own terms, which we know really means he's God, right? He's in charge. But he said this, and this broke my heart, not only does he have a very broken sense of worship, like if there's a creator, if there's someone you're accountable to in the end, it would be smart to ask that someone you're accountable to before the end, like, what should I do now? Like, not make up your own way, right? Then he said this. He was talking about his son, who is a teenager, and he says, I don't tell my son what to believe. I want him to figure that out on his own. I hope he doesn't take that same approach in driving, right? <laughs> Just want him to figure it out. He'll figure it out. I mean, he'll hit some cars, run over a kid or two, but, you know, there's a lot of kids in the neighborhood. Wow. So um, <laughs> we're hoping that he takes a more, uh, uh, I don't know, I want to say disciplined, but like smarter approach to other things, Right? You know, it's prayed for the school. It would be a little crazy, not that students don't try this, but it'd be a little crazy for a student just to show up to the class and want to do it their way and hope to get an A, right? Like, he'd be pretty smart to ask the teacher for the syllabus and, and the ground rules here, right? So when we are taught that our job is to be fruitful and multiply, hear this, having kids doesn't solve it. Having kids that you disciple in your faith that's what God is talking about, that you would represent God first and foremost to your family, that you would teach them the gospel, that you would disciple them in the faith, that that is your first and foremost job. And, and it's not my job to do that. It's not Valley Christian's job to do that. Our job is to partner with you, the parent. You're the one accountable for that. You're the one created to do it. And if we didn't live in a world broken with sin, we wouldn't need Christian education and, and, and the, those other things to surround the families, to partner with the families so much, right? But because we do, remember, first and foremost, it's your job to disciple your children. It's my job to partner with you. It's the school's job to partner with you, to help you, to walk with you, to disciple with you. So let's skip down to Genesis 2. We'll pick up in verse 7. Then the Lord God, just for the record, 
I hear pages turning now more than I hear scrolling. It's a good sound as a pastor. Just throwing that out there. All right. Genesis 2. Me and the old people in the room really like it. So, all right. Genesis 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. God creates the first man. He puts him in the garden. There's a good note to add here, especially young men and young women. You should hear this. The man gets a job before he gets a wife. We like that. (laughs) Again. Let's pick up in verse 15. (laughs) Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and to keep it. See, he gets a job. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of knowledge and good and evil you shall not eat. From the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So alongside the fact that dude got a job before he got his wife, that's good. He also got the way to live and glorify God. He is told, like, here's the parameters, here's the boundaries. First, he's given a purpose, he's given life, he's given sustenance, food, energy, health, life. I mean, he's given everything. And then he's given the ground rules, like here's what it looks like to image me, to glorify me, to represent me. And, and we hear this and we read this, and, and I know at least, for, I'll, I'll speak for me, when I hear this, I go straight to the negative. It's like walking down the street, having no care in the world, no desire to do anything wrong until I see the don't walk on my grass sign, and then all of a sudden I innately want to walk on the grass. Life would be fulfilling if I can go walk on the grass, Okay, I know I'm evil and and need the gospel. I get that. That's why I'm here, right? Didn't want to walk on the grass. Now we see a sign. Now I want to walk on the grass. Just true. I know. Some of you are rule keepers and just don't understand me. That's okay. Jesus loves you too. (laughs) So when I read this, I see the rule. and, And I want to break the rule. I get it. Like, I get the flaws. Here's what I want you to see. There's all kinds of ways to do right here. There's one thing that's wrong. It's like there's 500 forms of trees and fruit and vegetables and food and all these things out there, and there's one that's bad for you. He's just saying, listen, that one's poison. That one will kill you, literally kill you and everybody that comes after you. But everything else is good for you. Everything else I made for you. We often ask the question, okay, like, why put that there? Well, because our right relationship with God requires obedience. And in order to have obedience, there has to be the opportunity for disobedience. But it's not like there was 500 landmines and there's this narrow path you got to figure out. It's like everything was good, just don't do that. There's the ground rules. Here's how you succeed, don't do that. Everything else is good for you. Verse 18, then the Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Just know the helper right there is the term God uses for himself. Jesus uses for himself. Jesus uses for the Holy Spirit. It's not a second-class citizen term. It's important. Like, hey, he's not made to be alone. Give him a partner. I will make a helper fit for him. Verse 19, now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. That's a... That's a verse about authority, God giving authority to Adam over creation. Whatever man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, the birds, the heavens, every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not a helper. There was not found a helper fit for him. Adam lives in creation. Creation is perfect. I mean, by all intents and purposes, it's everything, right? It is undestroyed by sin. It is, uh, life is there. I, in my, um, in my imagination, I, I see the, the lion kind of come alongside those things that later will become prey, but they, but it isn't. Everything is right. He can walk up to the lion and not become lunch. Like, just a cool world to live in, right? Pretty amazing thing. And yet, here's what man is missing is community. He didn't have community. And community goes in these concentric circles like what he needs is a marriage. And what he will get from that is a family. What he will be a part of is a community of faith. 
and then everything else. And as sin enters in, there's a lot of everything else, and there's a, there's a shrinking, if you will, of this. Even this season, Christmas, we're talking about Christmas. You will likely devote all kinds of time, hours, maybe money, energy, to gathering together with people, extended families and coworkers and friends and all these Christmas parties. But how much time will you devote to your family of faith? How, how much time will you devote to gathering in worship? See, we'll gather in the name of Jesus, but not doing things that often glorify Jesus. You with me? We talked about that last week, too. Like, we're going to give lots of presents. We're going to receive lots of presents. We're going to give a lot of time, spend a lot of money, eat a lot of food, a sinful amount of food, drink a lot of drinks, all these things with Jesus' name on them, often not glorifying Jesus at all. Will we glorify God in our community and worship choices as well? Verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man while he slept, not while he went out to the bar. While he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. There is some beauty in the image of a rib being from the side. Right? A partnership near the heart, under the arm, right? Not over the head to rule over. Not on the feet to be walked on. There's some beauty in that there is a rib here, Right? Again, near the heart to be loved, under the arm to be held, to be, you get it, right? There's a beauty in creation here. Verse 23, the man said, this is at last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman, he names her, because she was taken out of man. Naming is that role of delegated authority by God. God has delegated authority to Adam to lead his new family. And so he gives her her name. Verse 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother hold fa and hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. The condition of creation here is pure. There is no shame in the world. Right? Humanity has been created. It's how they are to be. And this snapshot, it just says a ton about how we were made. Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Let's pause for just a minute. The serpent is Satan. We will actually see that. So we're on a four-week break from the book of Revelation. We'll pick back up in Revelation in January, right? Two Advent weeks, Christmas and the New Year's Day, back into Revelation, right? We'll pick up in Revelation 4. What we will see twice in the book of Revelation is that this serpent... Satan is defined as the dragon in Revelation, right? Again, one story, Genesis to Revelation, the Bible is one big story. And what we'll see is that this is defined. We know that the serpent is Satan. And so Satan enters the story. I know, it doesn't feel very Christmassy yet. We'll get there. Verse 1, let's read it again. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you will not eat of any tree in the garden? So there's three important things here. First, Humanity is sinless and without any shame. Second is humanity at this point has the ability to free, or in the freedom to follow God. Something you and I are not born with, they have. They also have the ability, obviously, not to. Third thing, Satan comes to tempt humanity and to get them to walk away from God, to disobey God. He is tempting them to disobey in fact, I want to put this up, temptation. Satan tempts humanity in the garden by questioning what God has actually said. As we read how temptation occurs, ask yourself how similar this looks to how we are tempted today. Temptation hasn't changed much in the thousands and thousands of years that humanity has been around. Let's start there. Let's read it again. Verse 1 in the middle. He being Satan said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Notice the twisting of God's words. Notice the emphasis of the negative. Notice how temptation enters in. Verse 2, and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, she adds to God's word, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. 
Satan calls God a liar. Verse 5, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. No, no, no. God is withholding good from you. No, God's lying to you. God is this cosmic killjoy that does not want you to have fun and have what he has. But if you eat of this, the one thing God said not to do, you will be like God. Now, remember, they were made in God's image. They are already like God. In fact, they are more like God now than they are after they eat. The image of God inherently in them, created in them, the design of humanity is to be like God. Just little, shorter, smaller, wearing flesh versions that are created to represent God to the world we live in. But Satan calls God a liar, tempts the woman, twists God's word. She twists God's word. It's not going well. No, no, no. God lied to you. You won't die. In fact, you'll be more like him. You'll be like God. You'll know good from evil. You know, knowing good and evil, there, there is a knowledge that you and I are never intended to have. When speaking to the students about this, when we're teaching on this, I always tell them, listen, there's, there's knowledge that you're not supposed to have. Right? All of them know my story and the things that I've been through. Well, nobody's supposed to know that. Nobody should understand addiction, endure addiction, or gang life, or prison, or whatever. I have that knowledge. You don't need it, right? What about people that have been molested? People that have endured loss. We have parents that have buried children. That's not how it's supposed to go. Not that it's easy to do it the other way around either. That's knowledge. It's not good knowledge. That's bad knowledge. Like we, we have knowledge of things, but that's not a positive. Like we say knowledge is power. Well, we're talking about education. Learning is good. But knowing things that we were never created to know, experience, or understand is not good. Enduring a bad marriage, suffering the loss of a child, again, being molested, raped, horrible things. We were not intended to understand, know, experience that. And those who have experienced it have knowledge that we were never intended to have. That's what happens here. They gain knowledge, but they were not intended to have it. This knowledge for them is pain and it's destruction and it reshapes who they are forever. In fact, it reshapes who we are forever. So yes, they gain knowledge. They know good from evil now. They were never intended to know evil. They were intended to know only the goodness and wholeness and holiness that is God. Verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Listen, if temptation looked like a turd, no one would do it. It was a delight to the eyes. It was desired to make one wise. Like, it looked good, right? Because if it didn't look good, we'd walk around it, right? And hope we didn't step in it. Where was her husband? As she is being tempted by Satan, as God is being called a liar, this husband who was delegated, delegated the right to lead this new marriage and family, who was given the very law of God, the very responsibility of God, the instructions of God, like, hey, everything's good except don't do the one thing. Where was he, as she falls into sin, was right there, doing nothing, like so many men in the church today. Just hold on to that one. He was right there. He was doing nothing. He wasn't leading his wife towards God. He wasn't defending his wife against evil. He wasn't discipling his children against sin. Nothing. He was doing nothing. And so he then participates in sin too. Verse 7, then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew, there's that knowledge, right? And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. 
Remember, they were naked and unashamed. That was the kind of the, the end point of creation. This is where they are. Everything is okay. Everything is good. There's no shame. There's no bad. There's no evil. They have no knowledge of evil. And now they disobey God. It says their eyes are open. And eyes are open sounds like such a positive thing, but it's not. Now they know evil. Now they know sin. Now, here's the first thing they do. They hide themselves. Right? This new shame. Notice what it represents to them. They hide what God created them to be. They hide from, actually, with one another. They cover up. They, they hide from the created world that they're in. Here's a note for you. We'll put this up. This is super important. The first impact of sin in humanity is an internal change or an internal brokenness. Nothing changed in the world, but they feel the need to hide. Internally, they are damaged forever. You see, everyone who can see the exterior of their body is all the same. Creation hasn't changed. The same animals exist. The same human, the other human, is the only human alive that we were fine five minutes ago. But now sin enters in, and now we want to cover up what God made. See, inside, they are changed forever. Inside, they're broken. See, we need to learn that because we live in a world where people are letting what they feel inside dictate how they live and identify in the world. You with me? That comes from a place of brokenness. But not just them, you, me. We got all kinds of junk inside we don't want to admit to, right? We have all kinds of pain inside. We have all kinds of brokenness inside that shapes how we live. Some are vocal about it. Some express the challenges about it. And the world we live in tells them, that's cool, just live that way. Live your truth. I hate that Satan. Right? Well, your truth is you're broken inside. We, we are broken inside. Not just them, we. Not just you, me. We're broken inside. This is what we inherit. Whether that results in gender confusion or deep, dark depressions that we don't tell anybody about that end in death, we're broken. Sin starts inside of us. It'll work its way out, but it begins inside. Verse 8, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and a man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. I want you to hear this. They're hiding from one another. They're hiding from the world. Now they're hiding from God. Never once thinking to run to him, rather they hide from him. Verse 9, but the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? God pursues sinful humanity. Verse 10, and Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Listen to that broken sentence right there. I heard the sound of God, and I was afraid of God, and I hid from God because what God made somehow now I think is wrong. God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Listen to his answer. God knows. God knows what's going on, yet God pursues him in this moment. The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, listen to his answer, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. It's funny, but it goes from bad to worse. Because in this moment, the two deepest relationships that Adam is supposed to have, one with God and one with his wife, he destroys both of them. It's the woman you gave for me. You screwed it up and she led me into it. You should have made her better. You should have not. Do you hear this? It is us. But it's heartbreaking. Adam has no, he has two places he could be able to go. His wife and his God. Instead, he separates them, himself from both of them, like we do. Instead of clinging to God in our brokenness, we run the other way. 
Now, I don't know why people are missing this morning. I know we got a, they're calling it a triple-demic, which I think is clickbait, but you got three things going on, right? People are sick. I've been sick, right? Got these things going on. Maybe that's that. But I also know people that haven't been attended in a few weeks, and it's not for that reason. Some of the stories that I know, because their life doesn't line up with what they know about the gospel, and it's easier to just not show up. We all struggle with that. Because when we're doing wrong, instead of clinging to God, we run from God. Instead of clinging to the others around us that are in the same situation we are, who worship the same Jesus that we do, i.e., our church, we're all jacked up and broken collectively, individually. Instead of clinging to one another, we distance ourselves. Instead of coming more when we need it more, we show up less. We run from God, run from the church. We blame God, we blame the other one, just like Adam. So if you think Christmas is about a birthday celebration, clearly you don't understand sin in humanity right now, right? This is the backdrop for God preaching Christmas, if you will, the first time ever. Verse 13, the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. There's no ownership of it, and, and it just is, right? And she was deceived, that's true. Temptation worked, it played itself out in her life, and the next thing you know, she's in sin. Again, there's a hundred ways this could have been different. Adam could have stepped in. She could have sinned and Adam didn't and could have grabbed his wife and ran towards God. They both could have sinned. And Eve could have grabbed her husband. They could have ran toward God. There's all kinds of ways this could have played out, but it doesn't. But the one thing that is constant is God pursues them. God goes to them. Right? Christmas is God coming to us in flesh. That's what we're celebrating that God pursues sinful and wicked humanity, and that as we're running away, it's that God is faster. That God won't let us escape because he loves us. Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go into dust. You shall eat all the days of your life. Now, I don't really know what happened prior to this, but evidently the serpent was not what it is today. And what we get in our brains is the image of a snake. But when we see it, ahead of time, the serpent's considered a beast that was created along with all those things that walk on earth and is cursed to be on a belly. I don't know any more than that. It doesn't say any more than that. And no other passage of scripture illuminates any more than that. But it's there. Take it for what you will. Now, granted, we're 30 minutes into a 45 message, and you're like, this doesn't feel super Christmassy. I came today for a Christmassy message. Welcome to Generations, right? I mean, like, that, yeah. So, all right. Here's where it gets Christmassy. Ready? Verse 15. God, speaking to Satan, says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. I know, you're waiting for it to get Christmassy. It's right here. Admit it's not super obvious, so let me break it down a little bit. God, speaking to Satan, says this, I will put enmity, strife, struggle, pain between you and the woman, evil and humanity, right? Between your offspring and her offspring, between humanity and evil, I will put struggle. You guys will contend against each other all of your life. Evil and humanity will contend against one another Struggle against one another. Human life will struggle with evil. All of our human life, right? That's a part of the curse that we will struggle against evil. Now listen, he, who's he? We'll get there. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is God proclaiming Christ to come. Genesis 3.15 is that Superman moment. Like, there he is. Kind of, right? But God, that kind of waters down the message here, forgive me. God says, he, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Other translations, he will crush your head, you will bruise his heel. 
See, Jesus will come. He will be the offspring of a woman. He, Jesus, will come, and he will defeat Satan. Even though Satan will bruise his heel. See, the crucifixion is proclaimed in the very first promise of what we call the Christmas message. That the child of a woman will come. And he will crush Satan. He will have victory over Satan. He will crush Satan, even though Satan will have this momentary victory. Bruises heel. That moment is the cross, he thinks, where Jesus dies for our sin. God proclaims this very first message in the garden. You see, the gospel narrative is this, that God created us like we saw, designed us to be worshipers, who gave us everything we need, and our job was to image him to the world, right? That we would represent him in our families, in our communities, in our churches, in our schools, in our workplaces, whatever it might be, that we would represent God to the created world, that that was our design, and that our design was to, in turn, worship God. And, and really, there was one thing. You just had one thing, right? Everything else was good. Don't do that. When you do that, you're going to die, and, and, and listen, if we had made it all these thousands of years and it got to me, I'd have been the one. So would you. And they failed. And we inherit their brokenness. We inherit death. We inherit sin. But even before the consequences are all meted out, Granted, they're already internally broken. They're already hiding from God. They're already blaming one another. They're already running from the only solution they've got in God. They're already covering themselves up, trying to cover their own sin with their own efforts. They're already doing all that. But right there in that moment, God preaches the gospel that, yes, you are sinful. Yes, sin equals death. Yes, you are spiritually dead. You were born that way. You've inherited sin. But I will come to you just as I chased down Adam and Eve in the garden. I am here to chase down humanity in Christ. That I have come to be the gospel message, that Jesus will enter into flesh. And again, Jesus isn't born 2,000 years ago as in like starts. Jesus is creator God that would walk with humanity in the garden. It's his words that created all things that we have. It's his spirit that is exhaled into Adam when Adam is formed and given life. Jesus is eternal. He has no beginning. He just enters into flesh to come for us. That in sin we die, but in Christ we get life. That Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sin. He was buried in the ground that, that moment where Satan thought he won. But then he was resurrected, having victory over Satan's sin and death. Jesus in the resurrection is victory. He's victory over Satan. He's victory over sin. He's literally victory over death. And that Jesus ascends back to heaven to pour out his spirit. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, the New Testament authors write. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. If you're in Christ, that is true. That's the very promise of baptism. That you are told to be baptized for the forgiveness of sins and to receive the Holy Spirit. Power to live life. That you're empowered in the gospel. You're not just told what to do and left to white-knuckle it through life. That there is nothing you can do to save yourself, and there's nothing you can do to sanctify yourself or make you more like Christ. Jesus empowers us. He gives us his spirit. Apart from his spirit, we have nothing. We would be forgiven, but still hopelessly trapped in our sin. But Jesus gives us everything needed for this life. So God preaches Jesus. We preach Jesus. The New Testament, here's Paul writing to 1 Corinthians 15. He says, the sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The solution is in Christ. God preached it in the garden. The prophets promised it would happen. 
Jesus came and proclaimed it about himself. He ascended back to heaven, and the church has been preaching this message ever since. Yes, I know it gets watered down all over the place, but this is the gospel message. It is a message of victory over Satan, sin, and death. That Jesus will enter into human history in flesh to overcome evil. Evil around us, evil in us, and evil eternally. So how do these words about Christmas, how do they apply to us today? Let's keep reading. Verse 16. To the woman God said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. We talked a lot about this, <clears throat> about the pain and childbearing, this promise brought up in 1 Timothy 2. If you just back up eight weeks, ten weeks to that message on 1 Timothy 2, we covered that a lot. So I'm gonna, just going to cover the other part. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. The translators of the ESV, in the second version of the ESV, changed that word. It used to say your desire shall be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now it says your desire will be contrary. It's because it was unclear in the English. It's the same words that are written again. You can look later in Genesis chapter 4 when God tells Cain, listen, sin's desire is for you. It desires to devour you, God is telling him. This desire is like predator to prey, like I want to eat you, desire. Not desire like I love you. So they've reworded it. I don't love rewording it, I, I, but I get it, right? I get that it was misleading. Your desire will be contrary to your husband. What God is saying here now is what's going to happen is your best, closest, nearest, dearest relationships, your family are going to be, they're going to be hard relationships. They're still good. You still need them. Marriage is still good. It's just hard. Having children, raising children, discipling children in the faith is still good. It's just hard. It was complicated because of sin. Now the closest relationships you have, they're going to be defined by sin and marred with struggle. Everything from the pain in childbearing to the struggle between husband and wife. I'm going to put this note on the screen. Destruction of the family, victory in Jesus. So God's curse to the woman is pain and struggle in the home. Our closest relationships are broken due to human sin. Jesus overcomes sin and gives us victory in our family. Jesus restores, redeems the relationships. They will always have struggle. They will never be perfect. Marriage is one selfish, sinful human being choosing to marry another selfish, sinful human being. I always tell people, just kind of choose the kind of crazy you can live with forever because they're all crazy. Oh, I say that to men and women. They're all crazy. Pick the kind of crazy you can live with because you're going to live with their sin and yours. Choose wisely. Choose in the gospel. Verse 17, and to Adam he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife. doesn't mean listening to your wife. He means because you followed it. Instead of leading, you followed. Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree in which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you, and pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. I know, still doesn't sound super Christmassy. I get it. Here's the curse to man. Work's not going to be hard. Your life is going to be struggle. And this isn't just to, to, to man, it's to humanity. That all the days of your life, whatever you set yourself to, it's going to be filled with problems now because of sin. See, he was in a garden that was made before him. His job was just to keep it in good shape. And it didn't have those thorns and weeds and this. It didn't have anything wrong. His job was to just enjoy it, keep it, be fruitful and multiply Fill the earth and subdue it. Enjoy what God had made and be obedient to God. Represent God to the world as more people become, as you have that family, as you have generations after you of grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Represent God to those in the world. 
rule over the earth, care for it, tend it, subdue it, live for it, take care of it. But now, every relationship defined by sin, every job, everything in life defined by sin, struggles and trials and relationships, pain and hard work and sweat in our purpose. Here's a note for you, the curse of life and death. Humanity is cursed by sin to live in a world full of pain and struggle and then return to the earth in, in death. Jesus came to bring redemption in life and victory over death eternally. By the way, all these notes are in the app if you need them. Jesus came to restore these things, to redeem relationships, to redeem the life, the world we live in. Verse 20, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. This gets more Christmassy here. We're going to close with something that is truly, truly something we can bank on this year. Adam called his wife's name Eve. Adam steps up, a failed Adam, a failed husband, a failed follower of God, steps up and, and takes his place to lead his home back to God. He renames his wife Eve because she's the mother of all the living. They begin to have children. And God has delegated to him that role of being a family shepherd, a, a leader in the home. That doesn't mean above. That means just he's the one responsible to navigate discipleship in his home, make sure that that's primary in his home. As his home grows, he's to, he's to focus on how God remains central in his family. It's his number one job. And we see him start to step up and take that role again. And then more importantly, it says, the Lord God made for Adam and his wife's garments of skins, and he clothed them. Now, this is sad and joyful all in the same time. You don't get the skins off an animal while they're alive. And so the first sacrifice is also offered by God. And this death points its way all the way forward to the death of Christ. That God says, listen, the, the child of a woman, the offspring of a woman will come and crush Satan but humanity, you will return to the dirt. You were taken from there, and there you will return. Death is a part of sin. But in the meantime, as we talk about what it means to be redeemed in Christ, as we anticipate for them, as they anticipate the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15, as they look forward to the day that the offspring of a woman comes and crushes Satan's head, in the meantime, they have a memorial, a reminder of death as they require a covering. And here's what happens. God strips them of their efforts to cover their sin, shame, and nakedness. God takes away their efforts of fig leaves. He offers a sacrifice pointing forward to Christ, and he covers their sin and shame. God covers their sin and shame. See, that is the message of Christmas, that God has come to us to cover our sin and shame, to reconcile our families and our relationships, to give us purpose in this life, no matter how broken the world we live in is, that Jesus has come to give us that purpose, that he has come to restore and redeem humanity in a broken world. That's what we celebrate on Christmas. We don't celebrate a child in a manger unless that child in the manger leads us to the cross. You don't need a cross to celebrate Christmas. You can have a nativity scene. I have one. But that nativity scene better remind me of the sin and death I was born in and the sacrifice of God who gave his only son so that I could be with him again. That I was not born in God's family, but I was born an enemy of God. Not because I wasn't born in a Christian family, meaning you too were born an enemy of God. But in Christ, you are made the family of God. And if Christmas is that, it changes what we do. It becomes less about the spending and overspending. It becomes less about the food we eat and the drinks we drink. It becomes less about the work parties that say Christmas, but don't focus on Christ. And it becomes about worship and a gathering that we get to gather together, celebrate together, because we have 
We may not have anything else in common, but we have the most important thing in common. I don't look like most of the people in the room. I don't even act like most of the people in the room. God help us. But I share with you the one most common, important thing in your life if you're in Christ. I share a common family, eternal family, with you. And that's what we celebrate. And this year, we have the great privilege of it being on the Lord's Day, of Christmas being on a Sunday, that we get to make that the priority, that we get to teach that to our children, our friends, our family, our neighbors, our coworkers, the people that are students in our school. We get to enjoy that together as a family. I'm going to close with this. This verse is Luke 2. We know this verse. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Christ means the fulfillment of all the promises God has made in the Old Testament. Savior means he saves us from our sin and death. That he saves us from Satan's sin and death. Next, we're going to have a slide. We're going to note we're going to put. We celebrate salvation and sacrifice. Christmas is less about a manger scene and more about being born in human flesh. Jesus being born in human flesh to give his life on the cross. Jesus is the promise of Genesis 3 who gives his life to overcome Satan's sin and death. I'm going to repeat myself. There's nothing wrong with a manger scene unless it's just cute and clean. But if it leads us to the sacrifice of the cross, if it leads us to worship because God has pursued us like God pursued Adam and Eve, because we are sons of the fallen Adam, but Jesus is the truer and greater Adam. And in him, instead of death and sin, we inherit righteousness and life. And if that's what the manger scene means to you, then God bless you on this Christmas. May we focus on the meaning that is Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you because you came here to be that sacrifice. You knew when when that first sacrifice was given in the garden, that that would be your flesh one day. I can't even imagine how that would be just to offer a sacrifice and know that meant your brutal death. Jesus, you came in flesh. We, we miss that for you beginning. when We know you're eternal. So we worship you as God, as Savior, as Christ, as Creator, and as sacrifice. Help us to turn our hearts towards you this Christmas season. Help us to truly focus on the Christ part and not all the other things that happen all around us. Help us to focus on you, Lord, because you you gave everything for us. Thank you, Jesus. It is in the power of your name that we pray. Amen. Amen.